everyone and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Triumph Coffee Break podcast. My name is Pietro Giampa and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Triumph, Canada's Particle Accelerator Center. However, for the next little while, I'm simply going to be your host for this exciting podcast. I'm very excited this is really happening. Triumph finally has a podcast series, so let's go. If you're a first-time listener and you don't know much about this podcast, here's what you're in for. This is a science podcast, but with a twist. Not only do we want to share the wonder of discovery science and the exciting scientific journey, we also want to give you a unique look at this scientific facility through the stories of the diverse employees that make Triumph a world-class facility. Each episode, I sit down for a chat over coffee with a different colleague of mine to discuss the world of physics, its many shades and colors, and let the story flow. From the study of subatomical particles, to medical physics, to the study of galaxies far, far away, the scientific palette that Triumph offers is very rich and definitely not lacking in content. So episode by episode, we'll do our best to cover as much as possible as we see Triumph through the eyes of the people who work here. It is through their stories that you will learn not only about the science, but also about the personal path and challenges that people face in their journey that have led them to this beautiful facility. So whether you know everything or nothing at all about Triumph, a place where the boundaries of science and technology development are pushed on a daily basis, well, this podcast is for you. Without any further ado, mugs at the ready, Let's get started with this episode of the Triumph Coffee Break podcast titled Searching for Absolute Truth. So let me introduce today's guest. Robin Hayes, she's a PhD student at UBC and Triumph, uh, working with the Atlas Group, and we're going to get into that in a minute later. Uh, and you're particularly looking at how rarely or how often the Higgs interact with a particular standard model particle. And again, we'll get into all those details later. You're very active in your community, so I'm really excited to see what your story is and what you do at Triumph. So without further ado, welcome on Thanks. the show. Thanks, Pietro. Okay. Happy to be here. <laughs> Fantastic. Why don't we start with the basics? Okay. How did you get involved with a subject as crazy as, as physics, and when did that happen? I did uh, my first undergraduate degree at McMaster University, so I was not in physics at all. I instead went into a really interdisciplinary program, um, and I took a whole variety of different courses but ended up kind of focusing on chemistry in the course of that degree. Right, so this and was a degree in science, but not focused on one particular science, is that correct? It was even more broad. It was sort of a mix of sciences and humanities. So it was a program called Arts and Science. Arts um, and Science. Yeah, that's so how the path to physics begins. <laughs> that's how the path to physics begins, yeah. So at the start, I was definitely not thinking physics. 
I didn't really know what I wanted to do at all. Um, Which is very common. A lot of people think common. that you get to university, yeah. you already know what to do. But that's not right. necessarily, I think, the, the, the most common attitude. No, no. Yeah, it certainly wasn't the case for me. Um, and so I, I chose this program largely because I could do all sorts of different things. So um, I took classes in sciences and math for sure. There were also classes in logic, history, writing. What, you know, it sounds like you took a whole spectrum of classes. What is the most bizarre class you took in this unique course or unique program? I took one class that was about bicycles. Bicycles. Yeah, so it was literally a class about bicycles. As in the, the, the engineering <laughs> side of things? There, it, it touched, I think, upon the engineering side of things, but mostly every other aspect of bicycles. So bicycles in society. Uh, we did a project about bike lanes, um, how bicycles had evolved over the centuries. Uh, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> was, that was step number one towards becoming a PhD student at Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, definitely recommend the bicycle course. So, yeah. so, uh, so you mentioned McMaster University, so mm -hmm. that's East Coast. I assume right. you're from the East Coast, correct? Yeah, I grew up in Toronto. All right, so that's that was not a long journey for you to go to university, yet still mm -hmm. different place. Did you mm -hmm. like McMaster? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I had a great time. I loved it. Fun. Even though the I guess the courses were all over the place, it was still mm -hmm. a very enjoyable experience. Very enjoyable, yeah. And I kind of focused on chemistry for the the latter part of the degree, so started taking um, I guess fewer courses about bicycles and things, and more courses about chemistry, uh, math. I took one physics class. Um, it was fine. Didn't really do anything for me. And so I graduated. Did you remember something yeah. from that course? Is that something that you go like, oh, yeah, I remember I learned this in my only physics course at, at undergraduate? I learned the Quark song. Have you ever <laughs> listened to the Quark song? <laughs> you can YouTube it. That's yeah, you for can sure. YouTube yeah, it. Definitely. That's great. If, yeah. you're, if you're listening to this, go on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, this this is pretty fun. <laughs> And I don't think we both have to take no. an attempt at, at singing. I think no. we, you know, we're, we're ready. I don't think I could do it justice. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I learned that. Yeah, I learned. I mean, you know, basic first year physics things, I guess. Um, okay. And then you get close. You, you know, we're going through your degree now. You're getting say close to at the end of your degree. We're going to keep dates out of this because I know people are very sensitive about this. <laughs> Uh, we're going to keep dates out of this, you know, because if we put dates in, then I have to give my dates and nobody <laughs> wants that. So so let's start with this. You're getting towards the end of your degree. Mm -hmm. You said you're focusing more on chemistry, but we know that's not what ended up being for you. So can you walk us through a little bit about what was your ideas and your process at the time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really, I, I, it sounds sort of naive, I guess, but I went into chemistry really because I wanted to choose something that I, I felt came um, as close to explaining the world as I could get. And to me, it seemed like chemistry described, you know, these. So let's repeat that because that's a that's a very important message. Yes. You just wanted to figure out. I wanted to choose something that that really described what the world is made of, what makes the world. And to me, it seemed like chemistry has these very fundamental kind of building blocks in atoms. And it, it's, I mean, it's all about atomic structure and what, what you can do with atoms. Um, and 
when I was exposed to that for the first time in my first year chemistry class, um, that that kind of struck me, I guess. And so I went into chemistry for that reason, that kind of pursuing of the so, most so, fundamental truth. So for you, when you saw it, it was like, this is one of, <laughs> that's what's going to lead me down the path right. of answering what, what we're made of. Right, exactly. Chemistry. Chemistry. <laughs> and then after a few years of chemistry, getting exposed to some physics also, I kind of realized that maybe what could actually get me closer to sort of answering these very fundamental to my mind questions was physics. But it's hard to stop a degree when you're almost all the way done. So I finished, I graduated, I took a year off to And you started out. thinking about physics. And I started thinking about physics, yeah. Because why not? Right, because why not? I mean, physics among other options, I guess, but physics, yeah. So you took a year off and that's when you really narrow down the physics was one of your interests mm -hmm. why, why don't you walk mm -hmm. us because this is an interesting point a lot of people feel like they take sometimes a year off after their degree to really pin down what they want can you maybe walk us through what it was like for you uh, to go through that and how you took that time to narrow down maybe what you wanted to do yeah so i i graduated and uh, moved from Hamilton out to this small town in Alberta, which is where my family... So now we're going from East Coast to Alberta, which yeah. I guess Western it's side. Almost West, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so lived in this little mountain town for a year. And yeah, in that time, really thought about what I wanted to have come next. Graduate school in chemistry was an option for sure, um, but I wasn't sure that it was the path for me. And I was considering a lot of other possible Could you give choices. us a couple of examples of like, or one example of something <laughs> yeah. completely different that panned out quite far from what you're doing right now? Yeah, I had all sorts of ideas about other career paths that would have been satisfying in other ways. One of them was um, actually just going into business baking muffins. Baking so muffins. <laughs> I really like baking muffins. I think that I do a pretty good job. <laughs> yeah, to this day, most weekends. Good enough I to think that you, you're, you you were pondering about a professional sprout. I figured I could do it. It would be a very different life. It might not make a lot of money. It might be a struggle sometimes, but I, th I think that there's a large part of me that would really enjoy it. So, yeah, I, I continue to hone my muffin making yeah. skills so, on the So weekends. even after it's a, a very broad degree and I've been exposed to a lot of science, you're sitting there in Alberta thinking in this tiny little tiny city or city, right, correct? It's 12,000 people, so it's probably okay. 10. So you're sitting there in this little city in, in, in Alberta and you're thinking, what am I doing? Either chemistry, maybe physics or muffins. <laughs> and like there, there are all these mm -hmm. different options. Tell us how you narrow it down to physics. Yeah. So I really um, felt that it was important to choose some career that mattered as close as you can get to mattering. And I mean, a lot of people before me have have pondered the question of what actually matters. Um, and so I'm definitely not alone in that. But what I what I felt um, would be, I guess, the most important thing to me was just again going back to this answering the question of what actually makes up the world like as as far as we know what is our world and our universe and to me it seemed like physics and specifically particle physics was 
pursuing those most fundamental of questions. Um, and I wanted to be involved in that. Nice. Particle, you mentioned particle physics, which is, what that, can I ask, is there a specific reason or th was there something that captivated you about particle physics, the study of all this tiny subatomical particles that make up nucleus, that then make up atoms, that then mm -hmm. make up everything we're made of? Mm -hmm. what, what attracted you about that, that particular field? Yeah, I think kind of this idea of these particles as, as the smallest building blocks of matter. So in chemistry, we'd, you know, talked a ton about atomic structure and how atoms then can, you know, make up compounds, which make up molecules, and um, you can sort of build up from there. But, but particle physics specifically seem to go kind of to a level deeper. So looking at what is actually inside the atom and what other most fundamental, unbreakable, smallest particles and forces exist. Right. And so, that was appealing. So ultimately, you just wanted to play with the world tiniest Legos. That's really what you <laughs> yeah, wanted to do for it. Smaller and smaller. <laughs> Understanding where those Legos come from and can, how can we use them. Fantastic. And so you decided physics. It's your path. We already mentioned particle physics. Mm -hmm. and we know Triumph is heavily involved in, in, mm -hmm. in particle physics in many aspects from high energy physics to particle astrophysics. Uh, but you decided physics and particle physics your path, and you wanted to go to grad school, which, mm -hmm. which is what you're doing now. But right. that it's somewhat a non-trivial step, and people mm -hmm. people sometimes think, oh, you just enroll into a graduate program, and it huh. is, but it's not like that. Why don't you tell us a little bit, when did you realize that you wanted to do physics for your graduate studies mm -hmm. and what did you have to do in order to put yourself in a position to even apply for some of those, those mm -hmm. positions? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So because ultimately you said you did a degree in general science and a very broad yeah. degree, right? So, so most people that say that tend to go into and uh, in, in graduate studies, they tend to follow whatever course they did, right? So this, yeah, exactly. So what, what did you have to do in order to get there? Yeah. So once I knew that I wanted to pursue particle physics, the logical next thing for me was to look at graduate school. But yeah, I didn't have a degree in physics. I still don't have a degree in physics. So I needed to go back to learn a lot more kind of basic undergraduate level physics. So I went back to Toronto and... Wow. So that's another crisscross. So now you're <laughs> yeah, moving back again east, back this time again. in your hometown of Toronto. Right. Yeah. And I did two years of undergraduate physics courses there. So um, University of Toronto, University I of Toronto. Yeah, exactly. Full time school um, for two years. And then partway through the second year, started looking at grad schools, hoping that now I had enough um, undergraduate level physics that somewhere would accept me. And the process of applying to graduate school is, as you said, not trivial at all. Right. Let's talk a, a little bit about that because I, I feel like that is and, and it's, it's it's a bit unfair for us to say apply to grad school because there's just so many graduate schools. Mm -hmm. But if we narrow it down to physics and most, mm -hmm. you know sure. even more precisely to the field of particle physics, uh, it, it certainly is a unique process. And I think people don't appreciate how, how difficult it is to get into certain programs. 
and how costly that could 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 end mm-hmm. up be. So why don't you walk through, for instance, how many how many places did you apply? How did you look for these places, mm-hmm. and 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 how was the whole process, both financially and and mentally and physically? Yeah. So I applied to six schools. All of them are in Canada, so lots of people apply outside of Canada too. But yeah, for I me, mean, I can I can give you my example. Yeah. I, I I tossed in a lot <laughs> yeah. of places in the U.S. Right. There were a lot of places right. in Canada, U.K. I applied to Munich. Yeah, yeah. all sorts of international yeah. schools. So yeah. you were able to narrow it down at least to Canada, which was already a step forward compared to right. <laughs> 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 compared to say, for instance, me. Right. So I was left with six schools at least, not more than that, and even six was enough. So for all of these schools, I was looking at the school websites. Uh, I reached out to professors who were there who were working in areas that looked interesting to me. Was that via email? By via f- first okay. via email, and then through most of November of the year, I was applying. I was skyping people. Um, so that's putting yourself out there. You were have to email those people and yeah, check. Yeah. Hey, how's it going? Yeah. I think I emailed between fifteen and twenty people and I Skyped the majority of those, I would say. W- was that um, an intimidating process to email very intimidating. As, as a non as you know, tagged as a non physics undergraduate? Emailing some of those professors. Absolutely, and for sure. Attaching transcripts where your transcript says not expected to graduate because I wouldn't graduate with a degree in physics ever, um, undergraduate. Uh, yeah, it was absolutely. Yeah, hopefully things will be different yeah. for your PhD. <laughs> <Just> absolutely. <thinking. laughs> yeah. Um, um. Yeah, it was absolutely intimidating. And then, I mean, it does get easier because, you know, on person number 16, you're emailing. You've already done it a few times and right. you're at the point where you you sort of know what you want to say. Um, and people were really receptive. I mean, I had a lot of good conversations. Uh, lots of people are willing to talk about their work. Lots of people were willing to hear about what I wanted to do. Um, but it's absolutely time consuming. I felt a bit for that part of my undergraduate that I was... Uh, you know, working this part-time job that was applying to grad schools. Absolutely, and and they're they're not free. It's you get a you get a yeah. pay. And for yeah. So yeah. each of those schools, I think, cost at least a hundred dollars to apply to. So minimum was a hundred dollars. Maximum yeah. was about like a hundred and thirty. And so you, if you look at it from an undergraduate perspective, you just decided physics is what I want to do. You now come out of undergraduate, mm-hmm. you have your student loans, and all of a sudden you have to put the extra money to eat, to just get an opportunity to be considered mm-hmm. for uh, for a, a given graduate school. Right, exactly. It's a scary process. Mm-hmm. It's a long process, but you went through it, mm-hmm. and ultimately you picked Triumph. So yeah. I want to talk a little bit about that. Okay, yeah. So let me start. When did you first get in contact with people at Triumph? And and. and how did you get to hear about them? Yeah, so it was really through other, through schools, I guess. I didn't know much about Triumph at all, having grown up in Ontario. Um, I was looking at, you know, mostly school websites that would list their professors, and then the professors would have a link to maybe their own website, and sometimes that would direct to Triumph. And so I I reached out to a few professors who I now know are Triumph-based, including my current advisor. Um, and I was, I guess, Skyping with him pretty early on. I think it was early November of the year that I was applying, where most school deadlines are kind of December or January. Um, and yeah, I mean, we had a lot of conversations. And um, I... Uh, would continue emailing him and other people for for most of that year, um, just figuring out what they did and if there was room for me to be involved and if I'd want to be involved. And then also just figuring out 
who of the people I was emailing and Skyping and talking with would be good fits for me. For you, right? Because one completely underrated aspect of graduate school is the match between the student and your supervisor. And I think you're, you're, you're in a very good position, yes. obviously. Uh, you have a great supervisor, um, and, and, and we're going to get into your work a little bit later mm-hmm. on to the mm-hmm. podcast. But, uh, but it is important. There's so many people that get into grad school, and, and then just the dynamics with your supervisor just doesn't mm-hmm. end up working. And, and you start doubting yourself. You know, the supervisor kind of loses interest. And mm-hmm. it's a tough process for, you know, mostly for the student, for a bit of both people, parties involved. But mm-hmm. it's mostly for the students because that's something that, you know, you just started your career and, and, you know, not being able to gel with the person who's supposed to structure you and giving you all the basics to, you know, form you as a scientist, it's, it's, it's really hard. Yeah. Um, how important was that to pick the right supervisor for you? It was really important for me. There are, as you said, a ton of different considerations that go into grad school. And a lot of people, I think, don't realize how much supervisor needs to, in my opinion, be one of them. So I think I was lucky in a way that I'd had some uh, experience working in labs and with supervisors over my undergrad chemistry degree and then a little bit in undergrad physics. Um, And I'd had, in particular, one supervisor with whom I did not mesh at all. (laughs) Um, And that made for a really challenging time. So so you you learned early enough in your process for your undergraduate that there were certain things you had to look for uh, in order to make this, you know, match working exactly yeah i think i mean grad school is a long time like five years if you're doing a phd and if you're working closely with someone with whom you you don't mesh um i think that that can make things substantially more difficult so yeah i i had some idea of what i knew i needed um i had some ideas of what made a good supervisor in my opinion and i was absolutely watching for those things i mean i talked to talked to of course the professors themselves but also to their current students right. to hear so the process gets more and more involved yeah right? exactly Fantastic. yeah did you consider for instance the location of where where you were going to do your uh, your graduate studies could that you're committing for a long term well it is you know two to five years or sometimes mm-hmm. even poor souls go through seven to eight years that's <laughs> um, a substantial amount of time you have to commit um, was there any part in location and, and 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 actually wanting to be at the lab specifically that, that made you pick this or yeah I applied all over Canada but my top choice early on kind of independent of what I knew of the schools was to be out west somewhere. I mean, I grew up in Ontario. Ontario was great, but I wanted a change. It's also closer to my family, which is a really nice thing. And um, I mean, it's beautiful out here. The lifestyle is great and you're living here. You're not only and, and, a student. And, and let's not go over, you know, the, the parentheses in which we discuss shoveling snow. Which <laughs> yeah. It's a whole other argument, which I'm sure it's in favor of Vancouver right, and Triumph. Yeah, you don't have to shuffle snow at Triumph. Moving beyond yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so, well, yeah, for sure. Fantastic. Practice. So you get to the lab. This is your, so you're technically enrolled as a, as a UBC student, but right. you're full, you know, full-time at Triumph. Uh, your, your, your supervisor, Dr. Oliver Stelzer Chilton, shout out, um, <laughs> is, is a Triumph full-time. 
Um, what was your impression when you got to Triumph? Because I, I assume that reading about it and, and, and knowing where you're going and then actually showing up and see this massive laboratory and all those people there, um, walked us through those first few days of just emotions, feelings, uh, you know, what you observe, whatever caught your attention. Why don't you walk us through all that? Yeah, I was thinking about this a little while ago, trying to remember my first impressions. And I know that when I first showed up at Triumph, mostly I was just so in awe of actually being in a place where, you know, the sign reads, I don't even know the exact language, but Canada's National Particle Accelerator Center or something along those lines. Something that sounded like a really sciencey place. And now I was walking in there to be a student. Like it just, I, I two years earlier had been sitting in a first year physics class. So that was pretty amazing to me. Um, and then beyond the kind of unformed awe and overwhelmedness, I, I think my affection for Triumph is a more kind of slow burn sort of thing. I really didn't know what was going on there at all. I mean, I knew the office I was sitting in and where Oliver sat, and Oliver was super supportive in the first little while, especially, and just getting me settled. But I didn't really have an appreciation for kind of everything else that goes on at Triumph. Yeah, and, and, and Triumph definitely just so much yeah. happening. Mm-hmm. Even from one year to the other, you you have to do a recon to try to figure <laughs> yeah. out what, 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 what is going on. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your scientific portion of Triumph. The science that we do, that you're involved with, it is high energy physics, specific particle physics, and we mentioned that before. Uh, but you work on a very specific experiment. This is the Atlas experiment, mm-hmm. located at CERN, without any question, the largest scientific laboratory in the world. That's in Switzerland. Um, but I, I looked up some numbers with the Atlas detector because <laughs> I was curious. This is mm-hmm. We're talking about something, if you're not familiar, that it's 46 meter long, it's 25 meter high, and it's sitting somewhere about 100 meters below the ground in this gigantic ring mm-hmm. in, in, in Switzerland. And yet somehow, some way, you're sitting here on almost the opposite side of the world, on West Coast, Canada. Uh, and, and you use that detector to study fundamental properties of particles. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do in your research with the Atlas detector? Yeah, so... So much is going on in the Atlas experiment that we kind of break down teams of people who look at different, look at the data for different reasons, I guess, into groups. And so I'm working with a group looking at uh, decays of the Higgs boson, which is one that I know has made the news um, maybe more than other particles. It was only discovered um, seven years ago. In uh, 2012. Yeah, nice. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Seven years ago, um, it's the... Hard to miss, right? (laughs) I think there was plenty covered. Lots of coverage at that point. Yeah. Um, So it's one of the, or I guess it's the the final particle of the standard model that, that was discovered, the most recently discovered particle of the standard model. And so we still don't know that much about it. Um, There's a lot of questions to answer about the Higgs boson. And 
one of the ways in which we can answer those questions is by looking at its coupling to other particles. So coupling, I mean, basically how strongly it interacts with them. Yeah, so you can almost think of it as a Hofton or, yeah. Right, exactly. So this, this shows itself by how often the Higgs decays into other particles. And so ones that we're specifically looking at are Higgs decay to two W bosons. So W bosons are just another um, force mediating yeah. Yeah, particle. Exactly. They're involved in radioactive decay. Um, and so what we can do is basically count the number of decay products in turn of the W um, in order to get an idea of how often the Higgs produces these two W bosons. So, so in a way, it's kind of like you know the X boson, it's talking to the W bosons, mm -hmm. and so on. you just need to figure out how many times does he actually talk to those guys. Yeah. So that's, that's a pretty interesting yeah. uh, measurement. And then by doing so, you can access more information, right? It's oh. not just learning about how many times you talk to it and, not, and if you talk to this kind of subatomic particle, but you could do more. Yeah, so the, I mean, the reason that we do these measurements is that the standard model, which is the, you know, currently most widely accepted, like really excellent model of, of physics in general, makes really precise predictions about how often the Higgs should decay to these two W bosons. And so if, if our measurement agrees with the standard model, well, that's great. That's another success of the standard model. If it doesn't, then it suggests that there is something else going on. And so at that point, the analysis can, can um, possibly lead to filling in gaps in our knowledge of knowledge. physics. Right. Yeah, it's neat to um, kind of, I guess, know that what you're doing every day, even though often you can get lost in the nitty gritty, um, what you're doing does have the potential to answer some pretty big questions about physics. Why don't we take a step back and we look at what it's a day in the life of a graduate <laughs> student at Triumph? Why don't you walk us through what you do on a, on a daily basis? What, what it's like to be a graduate student at Triumph? Sure. Well, most of the time, the day starts pretty early, which is something specific to working uh, with some experiment at CERN. So CERN, as you said, Pietro, is in Geneva. It's about nine hours ahead. Um, and so we have a lot of meetings that happen in the morning. Our 6 a.m. is there 3 p.m., so that's my earliest meeting currently. But, um, and, and at 6 a.m. you have to be sharp and coherent enough <laughs> yeah, to make comments on a, on a phone call. <laughs> right. Yeah. Luckily, you can turn off your video camera, turn off your microphone, listen in for a little while while you get that first cup of coffee going. But <laughs> First <laughs> yeah, of many. Yeah. <laughs> most of the time starts early. If not with a meeting, then, um, uh, you know, emailing people who are over there because you only have a finite amount of overlap before their workday is over. And then um, once Right, because one aspect, sorry, that perhaps we didn't pay too much attention, sorry to interrupt your flow, but no, no. is that you're working in a very large collaboration that right. is spread across the world. So you need right. to talk to people left and right. And when I say left and right, it could be Germany, <laughs> England, US, mm -hmm. Japan, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah, absolutely. The Atlas experiment as a whole, I think, is about 3,000 people in the group that I work with. The closest ones are at SFU, which is obviously really nearby, but lots of them are based at CERN um, and then many other people 
in uh, Asian countries, in Europe. So yeah, people are across the world, across many different time zones. Um, so there's definitely a lot of, yeah. yeah, I have a lot of different clocks on my phone to and, <laughs> check and Sorry, I didn't want to derail no, your no, conversation. No, it's Obviously, no. just it's, it's, it, it was a, a, an interesting point to make, I think. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and so once the kind of morning work, emailing meetings and so on is wrapped up, then I'll normally get on my bike and head into UBC or Triumph. Um, these days, it's normally Triumph. Because Do you I'm use your classes. course? Pardon? Uh, to <laughs> optimize your cycling. Yeah, thinking about <laughs> the social implications of <laughs> my getting on my bike all the time. <laughs> and then I'll go for a swim or go to the gym usually. It's only about 10 a.m. at this point. Get a lot in when you start And, and you're early. already at a, a 6 a.m. meeting by right, this point. Right, exactly. Yeah, you finished your morning meetings, take your mid-morning commute, exercise, shower break, and then uh, get into the office. And most of the work that I do during the day, well, all of it really, is on the computer. So we do a lot of coding, um, Python, C++, uh, lots of it. Or yeah, the vast majority of it is using frameworks that already exist that other people have written to to make plots, to look at um, features of different particles that we find in the collisions. So for instance, the momentum of electrons that were produced or something like that. Um, and, and that that's a daily occurrence. That in is, your <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the normal thing. Checking those electron plots, those muon plots. Yeah, so lots of um, physics, lots, lots of, physics, of programming, yeah. lots of uh, yeah. data analysis. Yes. Uh, large data set analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then the whole time uh, talking with collaborators, I I have this kind of impression of physics as a really solitary thing, you know, the, the lone scientist in their lab working away at all hours of the night. But actually, I'm constantly on Skype. Like, I am all the time messaging someone for help or to check in with them or sharing my work. Um, it's hugely collaborative. Yeah, because spoilers alert, your your ideas get better if you get input from <laughs> yeah, other people. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right, and, and just having conversations in the halls even, you know, walking Oliver's office is next door to mine, which is a really nice thing. So it's easy for me to walk over and stick my head in and check in with him. Um, right, and, and I certainly can remember from my experience, I had countless conversation, especially when I was doing my PhD, countless conversation with that professor or that postdoc or, or your supervisor where you go like, oh, yes, I cracked it. Now I know uh, how, how can I fix my problem or how can I can I move forward? Because that's what, you know, pushes somewhat uh, innovation, I would say, or, yeah, or new ideas is yeah. conversations yeah, and, sharing, exactly. and sharing knowledge. Yeah, and sometimes just hearing yourself say it out loud. Even my office mate has a little rubber ducky on his computer. So if no one's around, he can at least talk to the rubber duck and explain <laughs> ideas. And then I don't know if it talks back, but apparently it helps. A little bit of back and forth with the duck. <laughs> yeah. He's a way now. So maybe Hashtag I'll try talk it. to the duck. Uh, <laughs> sounds good. So, so, okay, so that's your day to day. That's your day-to-day. -day. Mm -hmm. lot, lots of data analysis, lots of communications, lots of early meetings mm -hmm. with no cameras, uh, <laughs> and, and, and lots of cycling around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Uh, that's, that's fantastic. So you've been at this now for a little while. Right, a couple uh, of years. How long have you been at Triumph? Yeah, I've been at Triumph for so two years, I think, yeah. 
I got here the summer before I started grad school, which was great. I could do a little bit of research and just get familiar with Triumph before also learning UBC. Um, so it's been, yeah, two years and a couple months, I guess. Right. So you feel like when, when we say this is a day in your life, you now had enough data set <laughs> <laughs> that I know to, to, to make this <laughs> a significant, yeah. uh, you know, statement. Fantastic. I want to talk a little bit more, actually, about your interaction with with the Atlas Group, and because <laughs> I find that actually fascinating, because it's a humongous collaboration. We're talking about yeah, three thousand three thousand plus mm-hmm. uh, people, and and everybody has a role, everybody has an important role, mm-hmm. um, and and before we sat here instead of recording this, you were actually telling me about tasks that mm-hmm. students have to do, and you were telling me how, for instance, in your first year you did require tasks from Atlas. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what are those and what did you do uh, in that regard? Mm-hmm. Atlas has so many people in it that it's impossible to separate individual contributions. And so what happens when the experiment publishes any kind of paper is that all 3,000 scientists' names go on that paper. So, so every single person's name is on every single paper. And that means that as a student, when you come in, you need to kind of do some sort of task. It like, can be kind of grunt work, but it can also be a really valuable thing um, in order to, I guess, get some experience and um, as a kind of barrier that once you pass, you um, also join this this author list. So yeah, so I guess your name appears. I guess your point is that you have to do a little bit of of the basics works that you know has to be done exactly in order yeah. to qualify you know as as a as a collaboration member. I guess yeah, exactly in, in a way. Yeah, and um, this work is normally the sort of stuff that needs to be done, but that people might not willingly take right. on. And it's that's not, how you control, I guess, a little bit. Uh, the flow of uh, not only of people, but also the, of you making sure the things get done in a collaboration exactly. that's large. Exactly, Which yeah. is not an f- easy thing to manage. No. Can you give us a couple of examples of things that you had to do to mm-hmm. qualify? Yeah, so my, we call them qualification tasks. So my qualification task had to do with the muon trigger at Atlas. So they're basically just the... Um, the combination of software and hardware that decides whether data should be recorded from the detector. So there are so many particle collisions going on all the time that we can't possibly record all of it. There's just not enough storage space. The only way we could explain it to people is that if you imagine a car collision multiplied a billion times happening Mm -hmm. every second. There's just parts everywhere. It's mass, people yelling. (laughs) Yeah, right. So I think that there's something like a billion, up to a billion at least, proton-proton collisions every second. Yeah. And that's so that's subatomical that particle to yeah. subatomical particle. This is like we're talking about the world's smallest billiard balls. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Smashing together and breaking into smaller pieces and creating newer smaller pieces out of the collision energy. So triggers help us choose only the most interesting stuff to look at. And so the particular trigger system that I was working on selects um, uh, data that has muons in it, so where muons are um, kind of similar to electrons but heavier. And they, they enjoy food a little bit more. Let's say <laughs> yeah, that way. <laughs> electrons that enjoy food a little bit more. Let's put it that way. Um, and so the the trigger system is a really important part of 
of the Atlas experiment. And so the triggers affect the data that we see. But we also use a lot of simulations. And so these are really um, complex things in which kind of all parts of a, a particle collision um, are, I guess, like imitated. Um, and so these simulations also use triggers. Um, but the the efficiency, so how well a trigger works in simulation compared to how well it works in real life in the data that we see, don't always match up. And you have to make a match. <laughs> right. Yeah. So my job involved um, producing what are called scale factors. So basically numbers that can be used to scale the, the efficiency of these triggers in simulation so that they match the efficiency of the real yeah. triggers that are operating on data. And it must be great because that, you know, that must really feel like you played a, a very tangible part in this gigantic experiment. Um, and then you, you get finally your foot through the door and mm -hmm. now you can focus on, on the work that, that we discussed before. So yeah, that sounds pretty it's exciting. Nice it's a neat way to, I guess, getting involved and, and, and do a contribution and feel like you actually you actually did something significant for an right. experiment that is so important right. to, to what we do. Yeah, with 3,000 people, I think often it's easy to kind of get... get Lost in the shuffle. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, sort of lose sight of where your tiny part comes into play and how it affects, you know, the operation of this gigantic, complicated experiment. And so these qualification tasks are sort of nice in that you, you kind of get to work on a really small piece of the pie. Right. One of the reasons why I was particularly excited to have you on, on, on this episode is that you, you obviously do very interesting research. I'm partial to it because I do related particle physics as well uh, in a way or the other. But what another thing is that in, in the past two years of you being a child, you've become quite involved in things aside from just research, but also making triumph uh, a better place, which is what we all strive to do um, in our own ways. Um, what 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 else did you get involved with uh, after arriving at Triumph two years ago? Yeah, I I joined a group called GAPS at Triumph. So it's a graduate and postdoc society. Um, and so there's uh, a committee of about, I don't know, at any time, maybe 10 or so of us, um, a mixture of grad students and postdocs. And I think there's kind of a pervasive idea that most of what we do involves ordering pizza, which is not totally untrue. And we it's order not a bad a lot thing to do, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so we host events largely featuring pizza that are, um, you know, lectures by scientists who are visiting or uh, we give opportunities to grad students and postdocs to put on seminars themselves, organize kind of social events because social isolation is a real problem among grads and postdocs. So and overall, just mm -hmm. making the graduate and postdoc experience a triumph better. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, there's been recently kind of some, I guess, advocacy work involved also. Okay. Where Anything interesting? I think so. You <laughs> want to talk about it? biased, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, lots of the things that we've... Um, pushed for or suggested haven't come to fruition as happens. What, um, what would you say it's your um, your most important contribution thus far? Recently, myself and some other members of the GAPS committee worked closely with um, a bunch of members of management to put into place a plan that would 
allow students who don't go to UBC or SFU, so non-local graduate students who are based at Triumph and do all of their PhD research work at Triumph, to access the perks of going to school locally. So that includes things like a bus pass, um, access to health insurance, uh, access to sports facilities. And, and that is huge, right? Because yeah. you're talking about people that come here for other parts of Canada or sometimes even exactly. other parts of the world. I've seen students coming from England. I've seen students coming from Germany. And you're sitting here, you gotta, you got to find a way to pay for for transportation. you got to find a way to, to access all those things that local students instead have included in there. Yeah, and it's exactly. an awesome way you managed to change that. Right. So, yeah, I think students who don't go to UBC and SFU go to schools outside of Vancouver, but do all of their PhD at Triumph often kind of slip through through the cracks because they don't have access to benefits like that. And so, yeah, with with Triumph Management, we um, worked out a system with UBC whereby they would get access to those things. And that'll hopefully come into place in the next little while. Um, And I think I mean, it doesn't it doesn't resolve you know, all difficulties of graduate students who are not based in the city or who, rather, all difficulties of graduate students who go to a school outside of the city. But um, I think it addresses some some pretty basic needs. And I think tons of credit for this is owed to Triumph Management, for sure, specifically Reiner, who's the director of research. But I also think that it probably wouldn't have come about at this time, if the grad and postdoc group hadn't kind of pushed for it, pointed out that it was so necessary and that it would have such an impact on the grads and post yeah, or grads who are at Triumph. Nice, a nice give and take. You know, yeah. you got to point out things for people to actually get in motion and help you. And I think this was a, a wonderful dynamic where this was shown, where you have a group of people mm-hmm. that want to make the lab and the entire experience better. And then you have the lab who is willing to make this a better place for yeah. their graduate students. So yeah, I, f- I think this absolutely. was a wonderful example and, and, and a great thing to do. So thanks. I'll, I'll thank you in advance for, for doing this. Uh, <laughs> I, I certainly benefit a little bit from it, so I can't complain. Let me take you another step back. So mm-hmm. now we, we've seen you wearing two different hats by now. Uh, you have a graduate student hat uh, and then a member of, the, of GAPS. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so a very graduate student heavy, I guess, episode. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, that being said, both as a student and as mm-hmm. a member of that um, society, what would be your advice to a student who wants to come to Triumph or would be interested in, in a graduate program in physics? Yeah, there would be so many different things that I could tell them. Um, Take advantage of the free food. (laughs) Enjoy the lectures. (laughs) No, but I think that part of what I would tell them maybe is that um, just as much as possible, take advantage of being at Triumph in such a a vibrant place um, intellectually, academically. And I guess specifically I'm thinking... Um, don't be too afraid to put yourself out there, I guess. I think that for a lot of graduate students who come in, the feeling that you know less than everyone else, that you got here through some someone else's mistake or maybe a combination of that and some luck can be really pervasive. 
Um, and um, I know I'm not the only person to struggle with this, but I definitely have. Um, and I think that the consequence of those thoughts and feeling that way is that you avoid situations in which people could potentially find out that you don't know as much as they think you know. So that means anything from giving talks to even just speaking with more senior scientists in the halls or at lunch. And those sorts of opportunities are such a unique part of being at Triumph and such a good way to learn more that I guess as I've started trying more and more to put myself out there and actually take advantage of those, I found First of all, that no one really cares if you sound stupid. No one, no one expects you to know everything. And most of the time, most of us walk around asking stupid questions or, or probably saying something dumb really often. Um, and second, it's such a just great way to learn. So I think I'd tell them that it won't always be easy and you probably won't feel like you belong right away and there will probably be moments of that throughout the whole PhD um, but just trust that other people are feeling like that too and that what you have to offer is um, enough and really all that anyone wants and um, yeah don't be afraid to take advantage of those opportunities and bit by bit it does get easier so it gets easier and don't be afraid to take opportunities when they present themselves that's including the final message for cookies well <laughs> including free food absolutely thank you very much for, for for being here for this episode unfortunately all good things must come to an end so this episode <laughs> is uh, n n not different from this and we have indeed reached the end of this episode so thank you very much robin for for being on the show uh, it was a pleasure to have you thank you for having me well, thanks for listening, everyone. We really hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, before we go, let me remind you a couple of things. First off, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at TriumphLab, all one word. You can also follow me on Twitter at Pietro Giampa. So tweet us or leave us a comment. We're always happy to hear your opinions or your questions. Also, if you like what you heard today and you would like to visit Triumph in person, we do offer free public tours every week. For more info, visit our website www.triumph.ca. That is www.triumph.ca. Now, this podcast is entirely produced by an in-house team here at Triumph. And for that, we want to thank the lab for the enormous support we received for this project. I would also like to thank the Triumph Community Fund for sponsoring this little podcast that could. We certainly wouldn't be here without their support. And finally, a big thank to our production team, Carlo Rodrigo, Stuart Shepard, Katie Ong. The art for this podcast is provided by Diana Castaneda and Shirley Wu. I am your host, Pietro Gempa, and thanks for listening again. Her coffee break is over. It's time for us to get back to science. So until next time.